So it's not enough to be relevant because that just means you exist in their mind. No one pays attention to anything that's irrelevant. They don't even notice that stuff. It's not enough to be enjoyable because nobody spends any time with anything that's a bad experience. So the top two layers of this pyramid are where you want to be, which is refreshing and personal. You are differentiated, not in a stunt-like way with a bunch of hot sauce, but you are differentiated in a way that they really, truly want. They go, oh my gosh, I wish it was all like this, right? Thank you so much, speaking to my soul. And if you are relevant, enjoyable, and refreshing, you stand a chance of becoming personal. You can speak through your personality, through your quirks, through your talent, to the human condition that they have, tapping that personal emotional reason they care. And now you're among a very, very small list in someone's mind or someone's life that is irreplaceable. If you're looking to up your startup marketing game, you're in the right place. This podcast will help you simplify, prioritize, and see big wins from your marketing efforts. Every week, you'll hear from some of the world's best venture-backed startup founders, marketing leaders, and startup experts about marketing, brand, growth, what's working well, challenges, and how crazy and fun marketing can be when you're at a high-growth startup. See ya inside. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the show. I am excited because today I've got somebody that is actually a content entrepreneur. That's how you describe yourself. And I highlighted that because I really like that. I think I might start using that. Content entrepreneur. Jay Akunzo, welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. Thank you. And I should give credit where credit is due. That term comes from Joe Polizzi good friend and mentor of mine who runs a media company called The Tilt, which teaches people how to be content entrepreneurs. But he's the one who coined the phrase. Oh, wow. Okay. I love it. I just think that these two words really sum it up, right? It's more than content marketer. It's if you're an entrepreneur, then you're creating your business based off of the content that you create. So I I absolutely love it. So Jay, you are known by many people. You're the host of the podcast, Unthinkable. You're writing the weekly newsletter, Playing Favorites, author of the book, Break the Wheel, if folks want to check that out. And you develop podcasts and docuseries for B2B brands. Is there anything you can't do? (laughs) I can't sing. And you have kids under the age of four. I have two Two kids kids under the age of four. I can't sleep. I can't bend down and touch my toes. I should continue stretching as I age. Uh, I can't sing. I'm a really terrible singer, which is why I love public speaking so much. My wife jokes, that's why I love being on stages because it's the only time anyone will let me up there as long as I promise not to sing. Well, you don't have to sing today. So (laughs) don't worry about that. So prior to the work you're doing now, Jay worked in marketing and media roles at Google, HubSpot, ESPN, and a VC firm called NextView. You might've heard of them. I actually heard you on Mark Schaefer's podcast called The Marketing Companion. I've also read Mark's book, Marketing Rebellion, and really connected with the vibe there. Like enough is enough. Like there's a different, (laughs) there's a better way, right? I felt like, you know, when you're in your teenage years and you're listening to alternative music, right? That's kind of how I felt when I was reading his book, as weird as that sounds. And so I heard you on his show and have been following you ever since and absolutely wanted you to get onto my show. And also just quickly wanted to mention Anne Handley, who is the CCO at Marketing Profs. She wrote the book, Everybody Writes. She was on my show as well. She says about you, you can go ahead and create more content or you can create something special that stirs hearts and engages minds. If you are the kind of person who wants your work to really matter, listen to Jay. He'll be your perfect guide. So she said that about you. <laughs> I would take that as a really good compliment. My love for Anne knows no bounds. <laughs> She's great. Yeah. She's wonderful. I mean, I don't know who is the kind of person who doesn't want their work to matter. I think everybody wants some of that, right? Of course. I would never start a show, a speech, an article by suggesting otherwise. I think everybody wants what they do to matter, um, or at least everybody I speak to. And I just think that the norms of work often push us away from it. Like there's a lot of insidious, unknown, and sometimes very known, but we feel helpless to do anything about it, problems that prevent us from creating work that really resonates with others. And so 
that's why I've been exploring this idea of resonance, quite frankly, for about nine months now. It's like very squarely focused on that one concept of resonance and how do we make work that truly matters to people? Because we're not in the business of getting in front of folks. That's not what marketing is. We're in the business of ensuring they care. So how do you do more than just get in front of people? How do you ensure they care? How do you create things that people deeply care about and take actions because of? I don't quite think we've thought through that enough. And so I've sort of made it a personal mission of mine to try and give some language to it, find some stories about it, see if there's any methodology or science or any of that to it. And so the one word that kind of rolls it all together would be resonance. And you do mention that resonance is today's top marketing skill. So clearly, like you just mentioned, it's your mission. Resonance is a really important thing. What's happening? Why are people not doing their work where it is actually tied into being resonant with whoever is listening, right? Do you think that's a problem? Like, why is this important? What's happening right now? Well, we talk a lot about the word reach. Let's just put those two words together, reach and resonance, because I think they often go hand in hand. And I just want to make sure we're decoupling them to understand. So if reach is how many see it, resonance is how much they care. Like I said before, we're all in the, the care business because, and I think this is the danger here, marketing gets conflated into awareness. Like the panacea, the silver bullet, the catch-all solution to all of our problems is if this just went viral or we could go viral at all times. If a million people saw this instead of a thousand or a hundred or one, problem solved. We could get in front of it or be made aware of or others could be made aware of us. I think that's a really dangerous assumption. Like the, think about this. The assumption is if only they were aware of us, if only they knew we existed in all of our greatness, like they would care, they would act, they would love us. And that's a really dangerous assumption. I think we need to focus on the love us part a lot more fully. No amount of awareness matters unless there's some affinity that you actually earn because that's what yields an action. If we don't get action, we don't get a result. And if you look harder at this word resonance, you find some really interesting things. For example, I look to the science. It's a little silly. This is kind of the work that I do, I guess. But you look to the science. You're like, what is this word? This word pre-exists marketing. In science, a resonant frequency is a frequency that matches another system's frequency. So a very simple example, I have, you mentioned two kids under the age of four. My daughter's three. I love pushing her on the swing. She loves it too. She loves it more than I do, but it's still great. If I were to push her as she's coming back to me, I have pushed too soon and I stop her. If I try to push her as she's swinging away from me, I miss or I barely add anything. So my push is pretty ineffectual. But if I push her in a way that matches her natural frequency at the exact right moment, it's almost like right when she's facing down or coming back to me, but like she's hovering in the air and then I push her forward. I'm matching her natural frequency. And then what happens is she's amplified. So what the science shows us is when our frequency matches another's, one system to another, we amplify that second frequency. And that is creative work too. And we've all experienced it. The moment where we encounter something and you go, oh my gosh, you're speaking to my soul. Or this, yes. Oh, and also, I need to tell five friends even before I consume whatever it is, this podcast, because I read the description and it speaks to me. This article, because the headline or whatever, the first paragraph says something that's so deeply personal and emotional to me and my life experience that my thoughts, my emotions, even my abilities feel somehow amplified. So when I talk about resonance, what I'm talking about is creating the sudden urge to act when your message or content or experiences match somebody else's life experience to such a degree that they feel amplified and therefore take an action. That action could be they go tell a friend, subscribe to something you create, opt to take a demo, buy something, remain a customer, but you're upselling them to something, that we're in the business of action. And resonance is what sparks the action, not reach, not awareness. So I think that's why I'm so obsessed with it, because it's good for people because you're doing things that they feel so served by, they feel it deeply connects to them, and maybe even declare it their favorite thing, which we can get into. I love that word favorite, but it's good for business too. Yeah, this speaks to my soul, Jay, because that's why I spend hours talking to customers when I work with my startup clients. I spend a lot of time talking to them, getting to know them, and figuring out like, who is this person? What are their goals? What are their challenges? What sure. are their fears? What do they care about? What's their day-to-day -day like? And that is apart from the product stuff. I don't ask them about the product. I ask them about what they do in their work and what matters to them. Because I know that this is the foundational stuff that will actually resonate 
right? When you put together your messaging, your positioning, how you sit in the marketplace, like it really does matter how you tie that into what this person is thinking in their day to day. That's how you best resonate. So I believe in this so much. This whole idea of like, you're speaking to my soul and I want to tell others about it. It's true. I just mentioned how like Mark Schaefer's book spoke to my soul and, (laughs) you know, I, and it's emotional. It's an emotional thing. So I want to talk about that a little bit more with you. I was talking to a creative leader on the show and this episode isn't live yet, but we talked about how being creative in art, in business, you're able to really connect with people on an emotional level. And so much of marketing is sometimes, especially when you're at a high growth startup, so much of it is like, the, it's logical to do this. We need to tie it to facts. We need to show that this tie it to ROI. We need to measure and everything is kind of like very cold. And I like to bring it back to that creative front because I think it's hard. And I think that it's not always front and center when people think about connecting with people on an emotional level. What's your recommendation? How do you resonate with folks emotionally? Because I think that speaking to someone's soul is emotional. Do you have a process? Do you have an approach? Yeah. Well, really quickly, I do. And I want to talk to that. But really quickly, the idea of like quant numbers, the coldness versus emotion, creative, et cetera. I think it's a false choice. I think it's what we're mostly saying is like, you don't see the world the way I see the world and therefore we're at odds. And I actually really do think that like, if it is a wonderful creative project, it measures well. Now, do we measure correctly? Rarely, right? How do you measure what resonates? Because it's like, well, this didn't go viral. This didn't get a million views or this didn't get a a hundred thousand downloads or whatever. Okay, well, what can we measure to signal if we resonated deeply, if we brought people closer to being all the way into our corner? If we felt like we published something and now they go, well, you're my favorite show. How do you measure that? Well, we busy ourselves measuring things that can be purchased. You can purchase downloads. You can purchase traffic. You can purchase emails for your email list. You shouldn't, but you could, right? You can buy all these things. I think to measure resonance is to measure what can only be earned, right? You can't buy people finishing your episodes. You can't buy responses, passionate responses at that to your email list. You need to be able to say, yes, people arrived, but more importantly, they stayed. Because I think more than ever before, great marketing is not about who arrives, it's about who stays. So we can measure that. So quant, creative, all these things, I think it's a misnomer or false choice. I think it's that we do one or both poorly. And so we assume that all of it we're going to throw out because it can't be correct. So I just wanted to make sure I was forthcoming about my beliefs there. And yes, I do have a very simple technique to make sure we're resonating emotionally with other people. It's called a story. Now, I think stories are one of those other things that it's like marketers have made it into a buzzword, which is weird because that's almost like chefs making food into a buzzword. It's like, it's just supposed to be the job, but storytelling has become a buzzword because we've lost sight of it. We say it so often that we've decoupled it from its actual meaning. So a story is just a communication vehicle meant to introduce and relieve tension. That's it. It's a way to discuss change. It's a way to discuss problems. It's a way to answer questions. A very simple structure of which is just status quo, tension, resolution. The itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout, not a story. Then comes the rain and washes the spider out and you have questions. What happens to the spider? Will it ever stop raining? Where does this go? Please keep continuing to communicate with me, right? That's the power of a story is people want you to keep going. They want to spend more time with it. They have questions and they want your answers. We're hardwired for the closure of what's called an open loop, that storytelling technique where you have questions, sometimes implied, like down came the rain, sometimes overtly, like today on the episode, what does it take to resonate with people? Find out next, right? That's overt. But either way, you have questions. So out comes the sun, dried up all the rain, and the itsy bitsy spider dances way up. That's about once again, I guess is how you would rhyme it. Never really realized that. It's a weird job that I have. Anyways, I think the story is itself a way This is what Kazuo Ishiguro likes to say. He's an author. Uh, He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. He says that stories are a way of saying to other people, this is how it feels to me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel this way to you? In other words, am I communicating? Clearly, first hurdle to get over. And am I aligned with you? Are we aligned? Right? That to me is how you bring in that emotional element. 
it is a tension filled or even just one moment of tension as with the spider story. You have this moment where you feel gripped as an audience member where someone goes, I'm involved, I'm invested, I'm in. I see myself reflected in the story. I want to know the answer to this. So it doesn't have to mean you're communicating in a way that's saccharine or you know, you don't need a flair for the dramatic, but you do need that little moment of drama, that little moment of tension. And that's where people become emotionally invested in what you have to say. And so how often do you use this process? Do you write every week? Are you thinking through like, okay, when I'm going to write, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to think through what's the status quo? Like I'm going to tell a story, right? And every story has, here's what's happening. Here's the tension. Here's the resolution. Do you think about that as you write? I think of these things like storytelling or creative techniques or frameworks. I think of them as scaffolding. Like eventually you slough off the scaffold. You don't need the scaffold because you have the building, right? So if you've created a lot of things as I have, like I don't sit down thinking, here's the structure of the story and I need to make sure attention goes here. But like a good example is today, I showed up to work feeling very tired. Kids have been sick and up at night, like, you know, for whatever reason, I just wasn't feeling it. So I didn't feel like I was in tune with my own intuition today. I wasn't sensing the story through gut feel. So I just really quickly slapped down a bad draft based on this is a story structure I think would be interesting. So I put out the structure. It's like opening vignette, story, metaphor, something here. The goal we all have, me and my audience, how we usually try to achieve that goal goes here. The problems I've identified with it goes here. What we might consider as better goes next. And then here's an illustrative story so you know what I mean with lessons at the end, right? It's like, I just had that. And is that what the final newsletter ended up being? Not exactly, but that got me going. That helped me build momentum and confidence again. And so like mostly I'm not using the scaffolding anymore because I just have this intuitive sense for is this a good story? Am I interested in writing and reading it later or not? But when you're starting out, bolt on that scaffolding, use the training wheel, use the tool, whatever it takes to get you going. So a three act story structure, absolutely, right? You sort of set the stakes, the status quo gets interrupted. There's something that's not certain. If you want to communicate better through story, there's only really two levers that you can manipulate and drive with. The first is sequence of events. Something has to happen. And the second is tension. It's not certain that it would happen. So you want to be a better storyteller or you want to improve your storytelling? Play with what details you include or omit and in what order they go down. Start them in the middle of the action. Start them in the beginning. Start them at the end and reverse engineer. So sequence of events you can play with and the degree to which you describe them. And then tension. Is it one central moment of tension? One big question? Do you lead with tension? Do you have lots of rising and falling of what I call kind of a, an advanced type of story? Would be lots of moments of tension and re resolution and you mess with stuff and you kind of play in the gray a little bit more the more you get familiar with this. But that's really it. It's from my process is mostly intuitive and occasionally you can bolt on a framework. But I think for all of us, we're better off that way. Start with something that's sort of directive or prescriptive, but really quickly, as you almost like as you reach orbit as a spaceship, you, you, the old school spaceships, you get rid of some of those jetpacks, right? Because now you're in orbit. Treat it that way. Don't cling to it. Use it to get some momentum or reach exit velocity and then do it your way because you have that confidence. Maybe you should call yourself a storyteller entrepreneur. What do you think about <laughs> that? That would be a little... I am just straight up a writer. Like that's yeah. the engine. If someone doesn't know what I am and where do I write? I write speeches. I write books. I write articles and newsletters. I write podcasts. Like I'm a writer and sure embedded in that as a storyteller. But I love that storytelling entrepreneur, storyteller entrepreneur. That's really clever. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so essential. It's so essential. Like Going back to what we were just talking about with the emotional connection, right? The resonance, it's so necessary, but it's not like for you now it's intuitive. It's not necessarily intuitive for others. So I really like kind of diving into how you think of how you structure it and use it as scaffolding. That's a great way to put it. So now let's tie what you just said to startups, to marketers and startups sure. or other businesses, right? How can marketers kind of level up? What are they doing now that may not be working well? What do they need to stop doing? What do they need to start doing? What's kind of been your experience, what you've seen out there in the world? And yeah. how do you think these concepts can be applied? Well, I talk to a lot of marketers all the time who, you know, they're creating a lot of stuff, but that stuff isn't overly gripping. 
like you 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 kind of like get in really excited because the headline says something profound or promises some kind of value, and then you're just disappointed inside the paragraphs, for example. And I think it, what it really comes down to is the interplay between your premise and your format. So most marketers are competing on topics, what they explore, what they cover. But a premise is also how you cover it, how you explore it. And it combines to give the audience a reason why they'd care. So a good example of this is there's a startup that got acquired recently and so that they don't exist anymore. But for a while, I really admired what the company Lesson Lee was doing with their podcast, Practice First. So here's this organization that sells training software for salespeople. They had, in their estimation, when I talked to them, 80 North American-based, domestic-based competitors, 80. And they all had the same go-to-market approach. Let's talk to sales executives and influencers and practitioners about how to be great at sales and then sell to those teams sales software or training software for your sales team. And Lessonly was very strategic and they thought, okay, well, what's our actual premise or angle here? And maybe even that's not even where they led the conversation. Maybe they didn't think about premise at all. Maybe they just thought we just need to be better. We need differentiation and growth. And so they did a number of things. They talked to their customer support and sales teams. And what they recognized is the people who already believed, the prospects and customers that already believed that sales was something to be practiced, a craft to perfect or master, they were better customers. Not the folks who just looked for a script to read. Not the folks who believed in some intrinsic gift of gab, for example. The folks that treated sales like a practicable craft, better customers. They adopted quicker, they stuck around longer, et cetera. And they also looked at the market. Everybody talked about it the same way, right? So what they did in their, their podcast specifically is they created Practice First, a podcast about leveling up your sales career. And this, they, so they told the story of their community right through the premise, right? It's like, we believe that the way we come at current sales expertise and excellence is broken, right? So the status quo is we all do it a certain way. We're looking for scripts. We're looking for a chatty person to be on sales, whatever. That's the status quo. But this is broken, right? Sales is this practicable craft. You're in the front lines. You're talking to people all the time and on and on and on. People on the receiving end, they don't want a fabricated script. They want a real human being who understands how to connect with them deeply and use the quirks of them as salespeople, as humans, to connect emotionally. Okay, so status quo, tension. How do you do that? Well, you have to master practicing sales. So for the show, we're going on a journey to learn how world-class practicers execute their practice. So back in sales, we can do the same thing too and become better at sales. So they talk to sommeliers and Olympians and all these other individuals that no competitor would dare interview because those competitors lacked a premise. So now suddenly, Lesson Lee's marketers are better storytellers. They're more gripping. The positioning of their projects feels like a story. And every single thing they do inside those projects is also a better story because they're pressing this point of view or top, any topic they took, they press through this lens or point of view to pop out something more original and more gripping. So when I talk to marketers, mostly that's missing. And so anything they talk about after that is flat. We're just exploring a, a top, or how to, tips and tricks are us. That's who we are right? Far better is to have and lead with that belief system and that point of view, which then lets you select and tell better stories. And I don't know as a marketer how one would be excited about, like marketing should be exciting. Marketing should be fun. It gets you going, right? You're inside this company. As a marketing person, your job partly is to get people excited, right? Because if you don't, who will? Except for the CEO, probably, because they're already naturally excited. (laughs) Make them care. You you have one purview as a marketer. Make them care. Ensure they care. Right? You can't force them to care, but show them why they should. And you need to care yourself. And the way you care and you get excited about it is to be a better storyteller, is to have that point of view and to press for that. I like that, like pressing through this lens and everything you share is kind of through that lens. Totally. And that's how you are different from the rest. Well, if you think about it, like Lessonly or anybody with a really strong, original, and well-developed premise, I'd say these are not lightning strike moments. You can bottle this lightning and you proactively use it. It is development of your ideas, development, aeration publicly, talking to people, pressure testing the articulation of those concepts that are clear to you, but need to resonate with others. This is a process. It's a craft, just like sales is a craft in the mind of Lessonly. It's a craft to develop your premise. So it's not like we pick the idea in theory, we're going to run with it. So if you've developed your ideas, you are 
unstoppable because you can take all the big names of your industry that everybody else has already interviewed and press them through your premise and out pops an original. One of my favorite examples of this is a podcast, an independent podcast from the author Neil Pasricha. He hosts a show called Three Books. And it's basically talking to lots of famous people you've heard of, like Seth Godin or Malcolm Gladwell or all these people who you've heard interviewed a million times, David Sedaris. And unlike every other show they've appeared on, it's not awesome people talking about being awesome generically. And every industry has their own version of that problem a million folds. It just exists everywhere. Unlike that, Neil says, I want them to bring to the interview the three books that most transformed their lives. And we're going to talk about them. And he reads them and he talks about like different pieces of them. And it's like, yeah, you learn some of the philosophies that Seth Godin espouses and other podcasts on Neil's, but mostly you get an interview unlike anyone you've ever heard. And that's because of the premise. And so like your brand should exist overall as a company level. You should have a reason to exist. Not I'm um, yet another, I'm just like everybody else. And I hope we find you first buyer before my competitor, because we're the same. All right, that's how we treat too many of our companies and also way too much of our content. It's like everyone does this exact piece that I'm publishing right now. So I got to make sure I rank number one, because if I don't, no one's going to give a damn about where this comes from. It's a commodity. That is the definition of a commodity. This might be useful and helpful, but the source doesn't matter. Wheat is wheat. Iron is iron. The source doesn't matter until you tell a better story, right? It's what you do with the wheat or the iron or what you do with the knowledge or the content. It's the way into the information. It's not the fact that you have information, no matter how smart that differentiates you. And so like Neil's a wonderful example of that, where he can talk to all these people that quite frankly, everybody else is already talking to. And it doesn't matter because you're never going to hear them like you hear them on his show. You know what that reminds me of, just in a much simpler way, is have you seen those clips of the stars that read the tweets? It's not like whatever people say that's mean on social media about them. And mm -hmm. here you have this person that's like reading the tweet or reading the post. Yes. And it's just hilarious. And so, you know, you've seen the star in movies. You've seen them get interviewed. You've seen them on talk shows. But this is a completely different format of like bringing them here to read this and like see their reaction and their personality comes out. I just think that's clever. Right. That segment has a premise. And I will say like this can tip a little bit too far. Like there's a popular YouTube interview show called Hot Ones, which is on a channel called First We Feast. So the Hot Ones, the premise is essentially interviews with celebrities and they ask the celebrity to eat progressively spicier hot wings as they ask progressively better questions and deeper questions. Now, the questions are incredibly well-researched. Like Sean Evans, the host of that show, has become known as an incredible interviewer. So it could stand alone. But they have a gimmick. And a gimmick is this conceit or way of manipulating the content that makes it more gripping, makes it more entertaining. And it could tip very quickly towards the trite, towards the hollow, towards the derogatory version of saying something is gimmicky, right? So that's called a mechanic, maybe, instead of a gimmick. So the mechanic is the hot wings. Now, it makes sense for that channel because the channel itself is about the intersection of food and pop culture. So perfect. Sean interviews a celebrity, and here's the food element with the spicy wings. I have seen a software vendor in the marketing space try their hand at hot ones for marketers where they had all the same guests saying all the same things every episode, but they asked those guests to eat progressively spicier wings. Yeah, Chili Piper? Is that what? No, it, what? no. Oh, and a different This is one. a long time okay. ago. I don't, I don't want to call oh, them okay. out because, you know, marketers oh, okay. are under a lot of pressure and they were doing the best they could with what they had. But yeah, that made no sense. That was a hollow gimmick because, yeah, it was an attempt to make the content more entertaining, but it was a missed opportunity to use your premise to say something that matters. It makes sense for hot ones on that channel. But unless you're going to say as a vendor, like marketers today have the stakes raised on them. They're under increasing pressure all the time. Today on the show or, or in this show, we explore how the world's best marketers handle increased pressure. So the questions are going to be about that. And we're also going to increase the stakes and pressure on them by having them eat spicier wings. Great. You've now said something that mattered. You're talking about the audience condition. Your story is reflective of their reality. They see themselves in it. But the way they executed it, it was just the same basic questions about modern marketing with a game mechanic applied that made no sense. So it's not just that we want to be more entertaining, more gripping, differentiated. We want to be 
kind of a welcome form of different. I call that refreshing. You want to be refreshing because you're saying something that people go, yes, thank you. This makes sense to my reality. I see myself in that and it's enjoyable, but not just a hollow form of enjoyable. It's meaningful form of entertainment. Yeah. I was actually giving an example of a company that I thought did it well. Like they brought the hot sauce on and they had the sales folks on and it worked out well. That's something Chili Piper recently did? I think they stopped doing that. Maybe it's not Chili Piper. I could be wrong. But it was like a couple, maybe a year ago or a couple years ago, they brought on the top sales folks and brought on hot sauce so that they were like having the hot sauce, but also talking about sales. So it kind of reminded me of that. No problem at all. They're going for awareness. They're going for the shock factor. That's fine. The hope is if we cast a wide enough net and get a bunch of people to be aware of us, they'll discover the next thing, which ensures they understand us. They love us. They see themselves in us, right? That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think you can actually pull double duty. You can actually create an amazingly creative show that's really gripping and entertaining while the premise itself helps carry your banner more fully, saying something that matters. Like practice first is a good example of that. I love that. You had mentioned favorite and said, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. Like earlier in the episode, what do you mean when you say like, oh, that's my favorite. You're my favorite. What does it take to be a favorite? If you picture a pyramid where there's a lot of audience at the bottom and very few at the top, most of us as marketers, we're always chasing the bottom of that pyramid. We want the most possible people. That is not the case for the way we pick things in our lives as consumers. We want to find the things that we can place at the top. In other words, of all the options in the world, there's only a very narrow list of things that we deeply love. And we as brands want to be there in the top of the pyramid. And the bottom layer might look like things that are relevant. Take a category, things that are relevant. Easy category is sports. It's very contained, short list. There's not many teams added any year to any sports league, right? Take the NBA, a huge basketball fan. So you have 30 teams in the NBA. That's the bottom of the pyramid. How do you appeal to or win over NBA fans? You have to be relevant. So relevant is like, they know you exist. Congratulations. They know you exist in this category. Doesn't do much for your company. Doesn't do much for your brand. The second layer up is you have to be enjoyable. So, okay, you are not only relevant, in other words, they've glanced at you, but you're also quite enjoyable. Well, given all the choice we have today, no one is going to spend time enduring even a B2B brand that is not somehow a good experience. So it's not enough to be relevant because that just means you exist in their mind. No one pays attention to anything that's irrelevant. They don't even notice that stuff. It's not enough to be enjoyable because nobody spends any time with anything that's a bad experience. So the top two layers of this pyramid are where you want to be, which is refreshing and personal. You are differentiated, not in a stunt-like way with a bunch of hot sauce, but you are differentiated in a way that they really truly want. They go, oh my gosh, I wish it was all like this, right? Thank you so much, speaking to my soul. And if you are relevant, enjoyable, and refreshing, you stand a chance of becoming personal. You can speak through your personality, through your quirks, through your talent, to the human condition that they have, tapping that personal emotional reason they care. And now you're among a very, very small list in someone's mind or someone's life that is irreplaceable. All the relevant options are those commodities. Like I can plug and play any of it. I don't care what tool I use. I don't care what cup I use. I don't care what notebook I use, whatever. But all the way at the top, it's like, no, 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 that's my favorite thing. No, no, I don't want to switch. No way. Or a friend says, well, there's a bigger podcast in this category. And you're like, I don't care. This one's my favorite. So back to sports. My favorite team is the New York Knicks. And if you're a sports fan, you know they're among the worst teams. Still my favorite team because it's emotional. That's how we make decisions about anything, even B2B software. It's emotional. I pick it emotionally. I rationalize it later. That's what all the studies on buyer behavior show. So the worst in the cohort is among my favorite. So the punchline to all of this is we as marketers busy ourselves trying to puff ourselves up to be number one, to be bigger and better or the best. And we try to prove that we're the best with all this support right? We're the number one rated on this analyst list. We're all, you know, in this media company, et cetera. But that's actually not how people make decisions. It's not how people pick you. It's definitely not why people stick with you. We want to go with our favorite option. So don't be the best, be their favorite. That makes you completely change-proof if you are among their favorite things. Wow. You said a lot of gold right there, Jay, which I'm not surprised. That's why I brought you on here to bring your perspective around 
you know, who knew we were going to talk about what favorite means? I had no idea, but that's where the conversation went. So I really like how you talked about refreshing and personal helps you differentiate in a way that they really, truly want. Like, that's really the goal here. And the way that you do that, you can't do that without knowing, understanding your target audience, understanding who your customer is. Because then if you don't, then you don't know what they really, truly want. Right. (laughs) You can't can't speak to their soul. So let's talk about ROI. We're going to go a little colder here. We've been so emotional. Let's just go a little bit back to like ROI revenue. How do we tie storytelling Back to ROI, back to revenue. How do we know we're really good at this storytelling stuff, this emotional stuff? Like what is important to measure? What do you recommend? What do you tell marketers? I don't bring this up ever, ever. Because if you're trying to say, what is the ROI of giant big category thing here? What is the ROI of content? I can't help you. ROI is contextualized. And so what we need to figure out is like, great. So before we can get to how we measure Let's figure out a bunch of stuff. So first, let's start with our goals. What's your goal for the quarter? And if I hear 15% growth, I go, eh, except I don't say it that way because that'd be rude and terrible. But in my head, I go, eh, that's not a goal. There's something called Goodhart's Law, which applies here. Goodhart's Law states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So if we're saying generate 5,000 leads through the blog this quarter, well, I can put names in a database all the live long day. Will they convert into business? I don't know. It starts to be a blunt instrument approach to measurement, to growth, to building a business is when the goal and the measure are the same exact things. So the goal might sound like the change. That's really what a goal is, right? Because a goal is a place you are not there yet. You have to change something to get there. So a good goal might be, we're going to build the industry's leading informational podcast about X, Y, or Z topics, right? Like eh, it's directionally a little bit better. It needs some work, but as far as quick examples go, that's not bad. Okay. So that's our goal. How will we measure our progress towards the goal? Well, one potential measure is going to be total downloads. Another potential measure is episode completion rate. Another potential measure is going to be efficiency with which marketers around the podcast efficiencies that we give them. For example, we write a newsletter and it takes us five hours a week to write an original newsletter. If by having a podcast, we can reduce that to two hours because there's great material in the podcast already that we can syndicate to the newsletter or at least use to inspire ideas or excerpt or quote it. And we've cut even in half or an hour is saved writing the newsletter. That's a form of return on investment for the podcast that we need to be thinking about, right? So that's where you start talking about ROI. So What should you measure if you're becoming a storyteller? I can't say that. But if we can get more in the weeds, I can start to tell you there's actually a lot of data at our disposal. Some of it looks like analytics software that spits out a chart, but most of it looks like using common sense to understand things. We hear from people all the time. They're pretty fancy people. They love the show. We should probably continue that show. I don't have a chart to suggest that. Or we can survey people as they buy or survey people because they listen or subscribe. And the insights themselves are a form of return because we can inform more content through that and verification that a subscriber to the show is more valuable than a subscriber to the blog. We can measure their activity by tagging and separating those lists, et cetera. So what I'm saying here is to determine ROI is part of the work, but it is work. And where we get into trouble with marketing is what we want to do is drop a pixel on a website page and have a tool tell us if we got a return or not. And that is where we get to trouble. And the more we can remove that culture and that understanding from our culture, the better we can be at our jobs. So that's why I don't entertain what's the quick ROI of this big thing. It's because the more we do that, the worse our marketing gets. Yep. Jay, I completely agree with you on that. I think there has to be some kind of a balance. Like you can't treat all marketing the same Because some channels are like brand awareness. Some channels are direct to the sale, very linear to the sale. And I think that it makes sense that a CEO or a founder, if they haven't had experience with content before, they're going to want to understand like, well, how do we know that this is impacting the business? Because I want to be doing this because it's impacting the business. So if you're bringing in something like a podcast, it can't just be number of downloads increasing month over month. It's got to be something that's Although that's a really good one good measure, right? Because then you know like, oh, there's a lot of people listening and where they like the stuff that we're talking about. It's got to be more than that. But it's not always 
linear to the sale. Like the pot, oh, because we got the podcast, now that's like, now we got customers that they go from listening to the podcast to maybe going to the website to scheduling a demo to if it, maybe that happens, but maybe it doesn't. There's so much other stuff that's going on. That is, like you said, the insights that are coming from talking to people on the show, from right. asking those questions, from, like you said, saving time, efficiencies that you're giving marketers because you're creating this content. You have so much content, you don't even know what to do with it. Sure. It's like coming out of your ears. So yeah. there is more. And I think a lot of times we want to look at the big data, right, to tell us this content is doing well and we should do more of it. But sometimes we need to look at the small data and the qualitative stuff. What are people saying when we post right. this clip on social media? Do the, it? Does it resonate? Yeah, data is under-understood. Under-understood, there's a word for you. Data isn't misunderstood because data just means information stored for later use. And so you can store numbers, statistics for later use. Sure. You can also store qualitative feedback. You can also store survey results. Like there's lots of forms of data. And if you're trying to pride yourself in being a data-led organization or better data-informed, at least, because, you know, your intuition should lead and data can course correct because mostly data says what happened in the past. But if you really pride yourself in that word data, then go all the way. Don't limit yourself. Gather all types of data, not just statistics, not just analytics, right? That is one form of data. So it's like looking through a keyhole at an entire world. You want to illuminate the entire world to make better choices. The other thing I'd say is marketers need to get better at asking why or asking if. So why are we doing this? Okay. If we only get this kind of result, is that sufficient? If we fail for the first five attempts, do we get a sixth, right? So I think we are too prone, too quick to just reacting with a quick yes, or my boss says this. We're not doing a good enough job of asking questions, being curious, not judgmental, as Walt Whitman would say, and Ted Lasso had reclaimed in his amazing scene in Ted Lasso. We need to be curious, not judgmental. Why is my boss asking this? Or ask the boss why. And a very simple posture to take is, Sounds like the type of marketing we want to do is direct response because you're saying how many leads will the podcast yield? How many sales will the podcast yield or blog or whatever project it is? I want to gut check that with you. Sounds like what we're looking to do is yield a direct response result. This is direct response marketing. I want to let you know that a podcast is actually not direct response marketing. Podcasts do very many good podcast things. They don't do very many good advertising and acquisition things. Right? If we were building a basketball team, we'd need complementary players, all of which can win. Not everybody on the team is a ball hog who wants to score 25 points a game. But if an executive or a CMO were building a basketball team, that's exactly the team that you would create, is everybody has to score a lot of points or they're worthless. Not so. Things set up the other thing, which sets up the other thing, which sets up the score. So having that inquisitive nature to go back to whoever holds the purse strings or holds your fate in their hands and asking good questions can determine whether or not you feel that stress, whether or not you're doing the right thing, et cetera. And you might get to the point where they're like, they still want a podcast or whatever the project is, and they still want it to yield results. And I am not convinced that that's going to happen. And if that is where you've gone, you've taken your attempts and you're still there, you're going to die someday. Why are you still working for a bad boss? Most people we speak to, and I don't know your audience directly, but most people I speak to have won the life lottery where like they get to choose where they work and what they do for a living. They're not trying desperately to feed themselves or their families for the most part. And so, oh my gosh, don't waste that. Don't keep working for that individual. Don't keep working for that company. Leave today, immediately, as soon as you possibly can or feel safe doing so. Get the hell out of there because time is ticking. You're going to die. Are you serious? So yeah, take a stab at it. Be curious, not judgmental. And ultimately, if you still can't get out to do your best work, go find a place that'll let you do that. Love it. And I really like how you said intuition should lead and data should course correct. I love that. Let me ask you, Jay, in the time that we have together, what would you say are just kind of like diving into your world a little bit? What would you say are your top challenges right now? Like, what are you trying to figure out? You know so much. You've experienced <laughs> so much. You're a content entrepreneur. You're testing ideas and talking through things and writing a lot and you have your podcast, you have your newsletter, you have your book, you're coming on other people's shows. So what's your biggest challenge these days? I can answer in truth. I can give you the biggest challenge that I face as an individual, or I can tell you the biggest challenge that my projects present. Which do you prefer? 
whatever you prefer, Jay. I leave it up to you. Okay. Whatever you want to share. Yeah. I'd prefer to share the, the real one, the deeper one, the foundational one. I have two kids under the age of four. I've mentioned that 700 times now. Partly the reason I've mentioned that is because I love them to death. But another question, another problem that I'm facing is enduring a pandemic with two little kids was an absolute cluster, was a total nightmare. And it became so clear to me how society has been built with two assumptions in mind for families. The assumptions are number one, there are two healthy and well parents parenting these children in this family. And number two, you see this all the time with, you know, I'm a white straight male, so this has not hit me for far too long. I'm very privileged and I'm recognizing that. But number two is, and one of those parents is either not working or works very sparingly. And historically, that's been the mom, right? So like, why does school let out when it lets out? Why is there no support, no public education, no public care until the child turns five? You still have the children. Who takes care of them if you have two working parents? And then the pandemic and all the problems they're in. So compounded by all of that, what I am still navigating and struggling to do so is the overlap of being ambitious and being a parent. Because our society is not set up for individuals who are that. Our society is set up for you are the parent, that's your job, and you are the breadwinner, that's your job. And that's just not the era we live in anymore. So that to me is the absolute biggest challenge. And I can wa- you know, wax eloquent about like project level challenges, but honestly, like none of those things, those are all very solvable challenges. But the parent and ambition thing, the combination of the two, that one is still, I still haven't cracked that one. So if anyone out there is listening and they figured it out, hit me up on Twitter. I would love to know as well, whoever out there has figured it out. Maybe there is that one person, who knows? And they have a podcast (laughs) that they started talking to parents and ambitious parents, right? That's a good one. That's a good idea. Yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, my kids are a little older than yours, five and eight. So I had one that was in daycare and the other one was virtual instruction for some time, but then went back to school. But yeah, I agree with you. It's um, society isn't set up for this. And so part of the reason why I left corporate and started my own business was because of that. Two working parents with little kids is not easy. And it's like a hamster wheel. Mm -hmm. And so something had to give. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is. No, me neither. I know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Very (laughs) acutely. And, you know, refreshingly, I feel like we're starting to embrace that like, oh, I'm not failing as a parent. I'm operating in a society which is set up for me to fail if this is the life I want to build. Because the alternative is just not my life. My wife is a PhD in psychology. She runs a research lab at Tufts University. She is the badass half of this couple. I'm sorry to say you are listening to the least impressive half of this couple professionally. So parenting-wise, it's 50-50 split, especially post-breastfeeding, post-birth. Like We're now owning everything together, and we wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, society is not built for that. Society is also broken in other ways, too. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, like the schedule we have was for the industrial age and farm heavy work, right? Like there's a lot of things where I'm like, oh, this is decades out of date and we still haven't acted to change anything. So far be it for me to say this is the problem. But in my work, it is the looming problem. And I don't want people to think folks who sound pithy on a microphone have it all figured out because we're all struggling in our own way. Absolutely. Well, wait till your kids get to school. They're probably in daycare now, but who came up with this whole summer vacation and scrambling to find summer camps thing? I'm not on board. Makes no sense. Makes (laughs) Makes no no sense. sense. No. So, okay, with the final minutes I have you here with me, Jay, can I ask you, what would you say are your goals for this year? What's your one goal or main goal that you have? Yeah, every year I set a theme more so than a goal because I'm sort of bad at the like plant stake in the ground, you know, work towards a metric or a change that feels within reach. I'm very mission driven, but that always feels out of reach because it's so far away. So what I do is every year I set a theme and this theme this year is go calmly, go with others. In other words, focus on the sustainability of my business as an independent creator. It's easy to experience burnout. And I've consciously with the parenting thing in mind, I've budgeted a 30 hour work week for myself and anything over the top is bonus. Because, you know, even without a pandemic, you always find yourselves either showing up and you're not feeling well or you're tired or, you know, more likely your kid is homesick unexpectedly, even without a pandemic raging. So 30 hours feels like, cool, I can average that. So I need a sustainable business, not a brute force 
working all hours type of business. And I also want to be mindful when I'm with my family and not be agonizing over work in the back of my mind. And then go with others. Independent work is just that. And it can feel very lonely, especially for an extreme extrovert like me, who also, by the way, has been cut off from society due to the pandemic. So my goal this year is to do a lot more collaborating, is to focus a lot more on understanding the inner workings of my own business model and aligning my model with my values, selling things to the right people at the right price that deliver the right change for their businesses and their careers, you know, in a way that doesn't play into cultural norms. Like the culture of being an independent content creator is you sell a $100 course to 10,000 people. I've always historically done a very high ticket thing for fewer people. There's ways to model yourself more like Tesla than Toyota, but it's a little bit less understood. And so doing things to revisit the back end systems of my business accordingly. So I'd say if you can sum up the goal, you know, I call it a theme, but it's, it kind of works as a goal. It's go calmly, go with others. I might start doing that instead of having like the goals for the business, just have a theme. It makes it a lot easier. It's a lot easier to remember. And every, all the yeah. decisions that you're making kind of ladder up to that theme. Yes. I love it. Forget about goals. I think of it as like a theme colored glasses that I put on. I can see the world just like a premise for a podcast or an editorial mission for a blog. I see the world through that lens, right? So I know I'm going to show up. I know I'm going to work hard. I'm very blessed and very privileged that I find myself able to motivate and get results. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the sustainability this year, right? The collaboration this year, the emotional pull I feel towards working with other people. So let me put that on as a pair of glasses because I know all the rest will take care of itself if I can keep that theme in mind. I love it. Jay, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show and talking about a lot of different things here. Like we went from you and challenges and personal stuff to storytelling, emotions and data and resonance. So we covered a lot of ground. If anybody wants to reach Jay, you can find him on LinkedIn, Jay Aconzo. You can check out his website, jayaconzo.com. And I just super enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Jay, for your time. Me too. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping weekly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on LinkedIn, search for Anna Firminov, or go to my website, firminovmarketing.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.